You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello and welcome to another episode of Writing Black, the Griot's podcast for Black writers, thinkers, and doers. And this week we have an incredible guest. Her name is Michelle Miller. You may recognize her as the co-host of CBS Saturday Mornings. And she's got an incredible memoir called Belonging. This book is uh, striking in so many ways, and I'm so excited to talk to Michelle about it. Michelle, welcome to Writing Black. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm I'm thrilled to have you. Um, you know, Belonging really uh, struck me. You know, the subtitle in this book is A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love. Um, but it's it's a, this is a big, rich story uh, of a big, rich life um, with a singular thread, a singular missing thread, I, I, I suppose is the best way to describe it, as um, the circumstances of your birth um, were very unique in that um, not only were you born mixed race, but you were born um, as, I guess, part of a clandestine relationship that was kept clandestine by your mother. Um, and this and my father and you. your father and your father, you're right. <laughs> and your father too. Um, and this, uh, exploration, you know, you really take us back from the very beginning to now. As a child, the only detail I'd known about the woman who birthed me was that she wasn't black, which unconfronting my light pigment and pointed features in the mirror each day had left me to assume she was white. As I grew older, the unsolved mystery of my mother inclined me towards chasing the answers. This might explain why a career in journalism called out to me. But, you know, you weave in so much incredible history, American history, which, you know, your family is also very entrenched in, both the family you were born into and the family you have made since. Um, So I I really want to get into it. Um, This presumably started with a segment that you produced about... um, your personal history, at least as, as I understand it. Like, tell me, tell me how this came about, this memoir. So the, <clears throat> so um, the, the assignment, of, I, I, I'm going to start with a little saying I've been saying a lot. It's okay. The assignment was understood, right? And my producer, a week after the death of George Floyd, uh, called me on the phone. Uh, this was in the middle of COVID. And mm-hmm. he said, I need you to give your perspective on all of the police shootings, killings, community unrest around policing. Um, you've had such a rich, rich history. I, I, it dates back to 1992 and the unrest surrounding the acquittal of the elite four, mm-hmm. those police officers who um, beat uh, Rodney King. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled my phone out. I dictated a script into the phone stream of consciousness. And there was 20 seconds in the middle of this, in, in the middle of this piece where I said, racism has impacted me since the day I was born. And I told my origin story in 20 seconds. And my producer said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I think so. And it aired Gail King had like, wait, what you talking about, Willis? Mm. Moment with me after the piece aired, um, and then thirty-seven minutes after the piece aired, a, Har- a Harper Collins publisher wow. emailed me saying that was unbelievable. 
that that's a book and I'd love to publish it for you. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your origin story, um, you were born to um, a prominent black doctor in Los Angeles, Dr. Ross Miller, Ross Matthew Miller, um, and a hospital administrator who was Chicana, um, whose name was Lawrence. Is that is that her real name? Is that a pseudonym? Laura Hernandez. It's a pseudonym. It's a pseudonym. Okay. To a woman we will call Laura Hernandez. Um, a a love story, um, but unfortunately, Doctor Doctor Miller was already married, and even more unfortunately, uh, your mother's family rejected the idea of her being in relationship with a black man, and mm-hmm. thus the rest unfolds. And mm-hmm. you, during your childhood, only consciously remember seeing her what once, twice, that you remember, yes. mm-hmm. um, until you find her later in life and you know I don't want to spoil too much of the book because the book is definitely worth reading but you know it's so striking this idea of motherhood and identity and the expectations we have around what both of those things mean um, you know I think a lot of us take for granted that we know where we come from for better or worse you know we may not be able to trace our you know as black Americans we may not be able to trace our identity very far but to have those questions literally from the very beginning to not even know you know, why am I this complexion? Why is my hair like this? You you, you recount a very early um, incident where you become aware of the effects of colorism in the book. Yes. And how traumatic that was. It seems to, to shade a lot of what happens afterwards in terms of how you interact. Um, so in writing this book and revisiting a lot of those, I guess, early revelations, early traumas, like, what was that experience like? I know you had a collaborator, uh, Rosemary uh, Robotham. Um, so I want to shout her out because we, we love Please, the collaborators. I do every chance <laughs> I get. I tried to write this book by myself. And I tell you, uh, being a journalist yeah. does not give you prerequisite to write a memoir like this. So I love that she, she said that. was just absolutely um, brilliant in this process. So what was the process like um, in terms of like kind of excavating? So, you know, it, it really was excavating because, you know, we remember our past in a way that's often nostalgic. We forget uh-huh. the bad and remember the good. And Rosemary, in in a way, was the excavator of my memory and uh-huh. the excavator of what people have questioned me about all my life. And it was like we were on this adventure together and it's so interesting because when she describes how I went about telling these stories, it was very clinical. Mm. Um, and I tell these stories in a very uh, um, third-person, un- unemotional way. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why. You know, I'm starting now with this aha moment of like, wait a minute, you aren't... Like, people ask me, was it therapeutic? was it cathartic and I and I say to them I don't know I didn't mm. have moments where or fits of triggering that elicited you know these emotional outbursts or these crying sessions or mm-hmm. any of that mm-hmm. um and I don't know if that's because I compartmentalized it in a way that I've kept it um how I process it how mm-hmm. I see it how I analyze it in a way that you know, I am this child um, who was hidden. I am my mother's secret to this day. Mm. I am unacknowledged. And for me, um, 
I, I have come to uh, the epiphany that acknowledgement matters to me. <clears throat> and perhaps why I'm the journalist that I am is because acknowledgement matters to me. And I think it matters a lot to a lot of different people. Mm. And the people in our society that often are unacknowledged, whether it be their history, their contributions, their presence, their their affinity, their nurturing, all of these things, I think, matter to many people. And I, as a journalist, pick up on those often undiscovered stories, those under, undiscovered, um, marginalized communities that have not been acknowledged for mm -hmm. whatever reason. You know, I, I want to talk more about that because I think that juxtaposition of being a journalist and writing a memoir is so striking to me. It's so interesting. Um, and we are here to talk about the craft of writing as much as anything else. So we will be right back in a moment with more Writing Black and more Michelle Miller. We are back with Writing Black and our guest today is Michelle Miller, um, the incredible award-winning host of CBS Saturday Mornings. Um, you know, where she sits at the desk with her co-hosts. Uh, and, you know, we've come, we've become, I think we feel like we know people when we see them, you know, yes. behind an anchor desk. We all feel like we know you. So this story, you know, I think it's so interesting to me that you were talking about compartmentalizing because to me, there's like a, a lot of vulnerability here. And I think, um, and maybe that's a credit to Rosemary teasing that out. Um, I also know that as journalists, you know, we're all so often told not to be the story, Right. Like we're not the story. And I know that early on in your career, uh, back when you were starting out as an intern in my hometown of Minneapolis. Um, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Honey, you had me with the Prince, with the Prince anecdotes. I, I was, I was. Oh, yes, for... baby. Oh, <laughs> I will be, you, you know, in my opening. I, oh, one of the one of the chapters were how can you just leave me standing? Yes. Yes. Alone in a world that's so cold. Yes. Yes. I, and and I and we, we we were just worried that, you know, it the line was just too yeah. rich. Yeah. Yeah. Owned by Prince's estate. That's true. But, yeah. Um, you you would have gone yeah. down in all kinds of red tape with that. But yes, absolutely on that. And um I, I laughed my way through through all of those little uh, they were they paralleled so many of my own. Really? Oh yeah. Did you meet? Oh, yeah. Did you meet Prince too? And I, I I had a similar encounter. I did. Oh you know, my it's kind of hard to grow up in Minneapolis and not. Um, but yeah. Um, but you have to tell me yours. Well, mine was a little less. You know, yours was very direct and hilarious. Mine was a little more like a, you know, a, It was more like a stop, um, scan up and down, observe, smirk, and then it kind of he kind of drifted away, like you know, like on a cloud of purple, like a purple cloud or something. He just kind of floated. Off into the ether. Oh my gosh! I don't, you know why I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Sometimes I was sitting there thinking, especially since people remember things differently. That wait, did I imagine part of that? Did no. that really happen? No, it happened. Um, it sounded it just happened. like him. It sounded like so many Prince sightings over so many years <laughs> that so many of my friends and I have had. Um, because he really was a human walking amongst us, and he was one of my heroes. So again, I, you know, you and I have that in common. That Princess Anthony, that very early, you know, the older cousin introducing you to that music and it having this kind of profound meaning and thread through your life. Um, but you know, speaking of, you know, again, back to the the journalistic part of this. You know, obviously, you're used to doing research. You're even used to, you know, you you you're used to even researching your own family. And I want to double back to that as well because that's another really gripping chapter about your father. But 
I love that you talked about the difference between writing a memoir, something so personal, and the work that, you know, we do daily in terms of just like yes. the fact finding and the, you know, what surprised you most about that process, like of, of having to put your, having to be the subject, you know, having to put yourself on the page? Well, how hard it is, as I, as I mentioned, to excavate mm-hmm. from yourself. Mm-hmm. And what Rosemary, through the process, um, was it, it was it was defined as questioning and re-questioning and re-questioning the same mm-hmm. topics mm-hmm. over and over again. So I think it was to clarify and to make sure the accuracy of the memory was there. Yeah. And um, and also to to hear the ways we describe ourselves in the past. And I'm sure that there was there was certainly overlap in, you know, in in the anecdotal and the in the accuracy of the memory. Mm-hmm. But then the shades of emotion or lack thereof in how you tell the story. Yeah. And it's almost like a different voice. Maybe I would tell the story in a way. That, that alluded or elicited uh, perhaps some more insight about what that meant. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the weaving of emotion mm-hmm. with the weaving of the story and how it happened, with the weaving of how it was perceived, with the weaving of what the stand back moment mm-hmm. really encapsulated. And I think that... You know, she had to pull all of this from my memory. I don't journal. Yeah, me either. <laughs> I don't do it. I feel I'm a like writer so who does do... not journal. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I know. It's like I'm a bad person. <laughs> I'm a diarist. So I keep elaborate what I did. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about my feelings. And maybe therein lies a, a clue to how my compartmentalization works Mm -hmm. because I am able to cover some of the most horrific stories over the last 30 years. And I'm not even a war correspondent, so I can't even say that that has entered the phrase. I don't cover war, but I cover strife and I cover pain and I cover violence in a way that some people equate it in in much the same way. And yet I'm able, I mean, I think about there is no school shooting to me that was more horrific than Sandy Hook. Yeah. 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 Because it was a tipping point, obviously, also for America. 20 babies. Yeah. Babies. And at the time, my daughter was the same age and the same grade. And so the, the impact to me and the parallel as I was covering it and then my daughter's school being is wide open. I mean, anybody could have walked on the campus. Yeah. Um, it, just like all of those. And yet it didn't hit me in the way that it hit some of my colleagues. And then I think about the Emanuel 9 juxtaposed as somebody walking into a church, you know, because I covered that directly. Mm-hmm. I didn't directly cover the shooting in Pittsburgh uh, in the synagogue. But that was it was the same situation. Walking in, praying with those people who welcomed him in and then him just and the historic nature of that church yeah um all of that so so i think the clue for me was that i compartmentalize well so i when i when people ask me was it therapeutic i think it was more enlightening for me mm-hmm. 
I glean knowledge about myself and how I deal with life and deal with disappointment, deal with absence, deal mm-hmm. with expectation, deal with um, moving through, getting back up. I mean, it's it's all it all is very tenuous. I want to talk a little bit more about uh, personal history in a second. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with Michelle Miller and more Writing Black. All right, we're back with our guest today, Michelle Miller and Writing Black. And we were just talking about, you know, well, we were talking about so many things. We talked about Prince. Discovery. Like, we were discovery. Talking about we were discovery. talking about discovery. Yes. And, you know, one of the things I love about your memoir, which, you know, let's show our listeners again, yeah. is belonging <laughs> with your lovely face on the cover. Um, you know, I I was really struck by how artfully uh, you and Rosemary wove in these facets of American history along with your yes. own history. You know, this juxtaposition of your personal story, which is unfolding, you know, you were a natal you were a native, excuse me, of um South Central LA. So, you know, you when you talk about, you know, Rodney King, it's like you were there literally there, you know, blocks away from from that happening. Your father, and this is so striking to me, that your father, uh, who was not only um a doctor attending to patients, but was also a race man, as we like to call them, and you know, was a person of the people and campaigned alongside uh, Robert Kennedy and was the first person on the scene attending to him when he was fatally shot, right? And that you, at the challenge of your son, um, helped to excavate his story as well. You know, you talk about restoring him to the record. Um, And I just was so struck by that, you know? Um, And we, we, you know, we'll get into the fact that you also are part of another huge, you know, Black yes. American dynasty. Uh, we'll get into that in a second. But I did really feel that this was almost as much his biography as yours in a weird sort of yes. way. And I, I, I love that. Yeah. Yes. He reminded me that in college, he had worked as a biology and chemistry tutor and served food in the campus cafeteria, saving every penny to make the same trip in the year between graduating pre-med from Howard and returning to pursue his medical degree there. He'd often shared that traveling the world alone as a black man had left him with an unshakable belief that he was equal to whatever life might send his way. In emboldening me now to explore regions as yet unknown to me, he trusted I would strengthen my own resilience and resourcefulness too. Tell me why that was important to you. So this book really is, I think people miss, I don't correct them as often as perhaps I should. Um, the book is a love story to my father and my grandmother as mm-hmm. much as it is a showcase of the absence that I felt from the void I felt from the absence of my mother. Mm-hmm. And I think people harp on the mother part and don't really highlight the part about all those other people that started with my grandmother and father and my aunt Edna. Yeah. Who, who filled in the blanks, who filled those voids, who were present, who stayed, who mm-hmm. nourished me, who nurtured me, who raised me, who, who, who lifted me up. And I think that, you know, I made mistakes with not acknowledging those people. And there were many people throughout my life that I never will get back. Like many have passed on. And this is really my attempt to to share. Don't 
do not make the mistake I did and not showcase the people who are in your life who made a difference for you. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's number one. And number two, it was, it, you know, it goes back to acknowledging how weaved into the history of America we are as yeah. a people. And I have always fought to be seen. I mean, I'm seen in one way and perhaps not another. And sometimes I'm not really clear on how I'm seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I did not feel seen at the time or seen as the way I wanted to be seen um, professionally. Um, I was a green rookie correspondent when I started at CBS News and there were a lot of people who helped me uh, remain long enough so that I could I could shine and really given an opportunity to shine uh-huh. and that was the first story that dare from my son it was a dare from my son for me to get on the computer at the point in time when the information was there right. so it was 45 years after the death of Robert Kennedy and more uh more documents have been released by the FBI, by the LAPD. Right. Then to go to and then finding that 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 note uh, in exchange for a ride from the hospital back to the hotel where Robert Kennedy was shot. My father agreed to an interview to two CBS News correspondents. Yeah. And I went in the next day and the producer that I started working with saw me. When I say that, he listened to me. He was like one of the first people to really like hear me at my level. And he said, it was worth a try. So you think we could find this? And he was like, oh, it's worth a look. And then he sent somebody else. So that was Joniel Adriano, shout out. Anam Sadiq, shout out, who then was like a news associate. And she scoured through, I think, something like 48 hours worth of tape. Wow. Right, and then found that seven minute. Can you describe the senator's wounds? Well, they were a mass of blood, and he had head injuries. The extent of them could not be ascertained immediately. Can you imagine scouring tape? I've done it. Yeah. (laughs) Right, and so what I'm saying to you is that it took people, like, they invested in me. Yeah, yeah. And then the boss to say... And, you know, yes, tell that story, not knowing what we would find. It was incredible when I yeah. think about it. Yeah. Because I, I found the guy that he went to the hospital with. There's still a dent there. The bullet went into the into uh, first layer skull and out. And then I found the photographer. And then the gold mine. The gold mine was finding the picture that placed my father at the scene. There in the corner, standing just outside of Kennedy's room, Dr. Miller. Yes, it's him. It's him. That's him. That's in 2013 that I tell this story. But remembering to Rosemary in 2021 and 2022 that my grandmother used to always talk about how we landed the same day and had to wait on the tarmac that Robert F. Kennedy's body was flown back east. Mm. Now that, like, that's a little piece of gold. Yeah. And it's true. It's like, like, and there are all of these incredible serendipitous moments in my life like that. Okay. That are so unbelievable. And I tell people, you have them too. Either you don't remember them 
or you haven't made the connection. Yeah. And so I just wanted to to share that there is magic all around us. Absolutely. And I definitely think that that is a huge takeaway from belonging, like as much as it's a poignant and, and you know, in many ways, sad story. It's also a really inspiring one. And I, I want to talk about that more. We're going to come back in just one second and talk more about belonging by Michelle Miller. We're back with Michelle Miller and more writing black. Uh, you know, Michelle, we were just talking about magic being all around. And you're you really have had what I love about this book that is that as much as yes there's a sense of um a lost child you know um you know being a bit adrift you know and I think that you are very conscious of that throughout the telling of the story um also you land always where you're you know it's it's a it's a it's a reminder I think to all of us that you land where you're supposed to land right you you find your people you build your families you you know um, even what you were just saying about all the people who made a family for you, all these mothers who showed up in the absence of your biological mother, you know, um, whether it be Vondella, who, you know, basically, you know, gave up her life to come and, and be surrogate mother to you or your grandmother or Aunt Edna or any of these amazing women, these mentors, you know, because a lot of us don't get mentorship the way that we would hope to. Um and then there is the family that you built. So, you know, what are the odds that you are going to, you know, as a reporter, um, you know, as report, you know, for people who are unfamiliar with how uh, reporters work, it's, it's a lot like, I kind of feel like it's like the draft or something, you know, you, you kind of end up in the city that, you, you know, like, you know, you, yes, you, you, that's yeah, very you, much you know, like, it's like it. Yeah, it's like the NBA you know draft, you know, like, we want you, right, <laughs> exactly. Um, and you end up in New Orleans. And there is a, uh, at that time, a, history has been made by a, a the youngest mayor in the city's history, uh, who is a second-gen mayor, because his father was the first black mayor of that city. We're talking about Mark Morial, who we now know is your husband. Um, but the odds of this happening, this particular, um, this unfolding of this relationship, I think, is um, another bit of magic in a magical city, in a magical place. Um and you really kind of reckoning with what that means. And of course, you know, in that sense, you're marrying into a, a very established, very entrenched family. And here you are as kind of at this point, um, a very independent, you know, person who is living, you know, solo, a Pyramid family. Right. Um, was that, was that, um, how was that telling your love story? I think that's, like, you know, to me, that would be probably the most <laughs> personal, <laughs> personal, but, but you I, know, oddly enough, but. For me, it was it was really an, a moment to set the record straight because Damn. people have wondered how that occurred. Oh, and it was a really like it was serendipitous in in moments where like oh wait a minute, um like for instance how we met, uh, what connections we had like his comms director was my across the street neighbor's best friend's daughter. She told me that the minute I went to City Hall and was part of a press conference with the mayor who showed up 45 minutes mm -hmm. late, and I'd already had like kind of words with, you know, in a, a rapid fire Q&A from from, you know, the press corps on my first day. And um, she invited me to an event. I went to the event and I didn't realize it was a fundraiser. So I hightailed it out and he was coming up the stairs. And he was like, where are you going? I'm leaving. He was like, well, you have a ride. I was like, no, I'm going to catch a cab or walk back. And the quarter was a dangerous place at that mm -hmm. time. New Orleans was the murder capital of the 
of of the world at that time. And he's like, no, give me five minutes. I'm going to make sure you get back. And so he and his driver, the two of them in the front seat, me in the back, like in the middle, like a little kid, he gave me a ride back to the station and pulled all the way in. And I get the mayor's car. <laughs> Can you imagine what that looked like? Yeah. And so, like, the rumors were flying left and right. And I remember... And you're the new girl. You're the new girl in town. I'm the new girl, Gosh. right? And so, you know, like... And um, what was hilarious about it at the time... Well, what's hilarious now... And there's so much... There's so much hilarity in this book tour. Because... Let me tell you what's come out of the book tour. One, I, the, the man who helped me find my mother... I hadn't seen in 30 years. He he happened to be in Atlanta for a book signing and oh, wow. he showed up. So that was a reconnection. Also with that book signing, my father's babysitter from Compton, California. She lives in Atlanta now. He She shows up. Then I, then I get a call from the reporter who I worked with in New Orleans at the time. And he remembers all of these things. That did not happen. <laughs> and so I had to kind of set the records. I was like, that's not how it went down. And see, and that and that to me is the power of memoirs, being able to set the, the records straight. I mean, I think people right. think of the memoirs like, I get to tell the story the way I wanted to tell it. To an extent, yes. But, you know, as journalists, we still deal in facts. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in that uh, for sure. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but we're going to be back with more Writing Black and more with our guest, Michelle Miller. And we are back with more Writing Black. What has that meant to you in terms of this incomplete narrative, obviously, with your biological mother, and now being able to start your own family? You know, I was explaining to people how you feel differently about things through a process. Mm -hmm. And when I started the book, um, even before I started the book, I, I think of my mother in waves of, mm -hmm. um, of uh, in time spans, Uh from zero to 20, there was, there was, oh, it's absence. I don't know okay. the wonder, right? When I met her, uh, there was, oh, I understand. I, I can't fault her. I might have made a similar choice. Mm. But when I had my children and her lack of acknowledging them, that's when it became personal. And that's when I think the seed of anger started to well in me mm. and swell. Um, and then 10 years later, when I asked her after everyone that she claimed she loved had died, mm -hmm. the people who really mattered to her, her mother, her father, her husband, why she couldn't acknowledge me to her family then. And she said to me, because they would think I'm a liar. And how I answered that was really crushing i think uh -huh. to her uh -huh. cruel she said uh -huh. and so that th i think that that you and and i even feel differently now than perhaps i did eight seven years ago um and that i'm okay i get it i uh -huh. i am just i think the bottom line the win out of of my belonging is that i'm here yeah yeah the win is I've, I had a family that raised me and that it, some kind of way they instilled ambition, they instilled uh, a, a, a keen sense of perseverance, 
um, a incredible work ethic and the will to look at the sunny side up, the glass half full. Um, and as my aunt Edna would always say, you have to make your own self happy. I, I love that. I love that so much. Uh, we're going to take a final break and we'll be back with Michelle Miller and more Writing Black. Michelle, we were just talking about joy and I loved what you were saying about that because I do think it's so easy for us to get caught up in the minutia of um, of our lives now and not think of the broad strokes of how we've gotten here, how we're able to get here. And I do want to talk about some place that I'm going to call for for you, perhaps, and for a lot of people I know, the Mecca of joy, which is Howard University. Um, H-U? You, are, you know. Uh, now, I did not go to Howard. It was, sorry, it was my number two. I almost went. My sister did. Um, but I have a very soft spot of, for Howard because it was such a huge part of our family life. And I know you did as well. You were a third third generation to go to Howard. I um, am. And you went with some 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 names that we would recognize. You know, yes. you roommates with Wendy Raquel Robinson, who many of us, you know, have grown up watching on television. Um, although I'm not that much younger than you, so, <laughs> so there's that part. Um, but you know, this Sean Peavy Combs. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Kyla Harris was was a senior when you were a freshman. Yes, she was. Um, you, you know, know, that's three. But that's three pretty good ones right that's there. Good. I, that's I, pretty I, good. It's very impressive. Hey, very Mark, impressive. Hey, Mark Mason, CFO of uh, City <laughs> City Group. Chief you know, Financial Officer. Yes, indeed. Let's give a big shout out. It is Charles it is the Boy, mecca for a reason. Disney. You know. Position, then, yeah, there are a lot of folks. Yeah, and I guess what I'm, what I wanted to uh, touch on, you know, because I know a lot of our audience also has a soft spot for Howard, whether personally or just, you know, because it's legendary. Um, when we talk about this search for identity, now obviously this was already part of your family legacy. This is this is what you wanted to do, but in that sense of here you are obviously a mixed race person who's grown up in a black world, like predominantly, you've always been juxtaposed as a black person. Mm -hmm. um, but what did Howard do for you in terms of further kind of defining that identity and, and giving you it, your place girl, in the world? It rooted me, it rooted me in the absolute awesomeness of our history. Mm. The first course at Howard University that I took that really impacted me was history of the black diaspora mm. and the what i learned how far back into antiquity africans and their their journey throughout the world had been and how impactful and how monumental it is and i'm talking beyond egypt mm -hmm. I'm talking Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm talking the Iron Age. I'm talking, you know, uh, and and I, and then I think about our history within the United States and what we did to do our labor, but through our skill set. And I think the fallacy of people not understanding that we were kidnapped based on our skill set, mm. the artisans, the craftsmen, the architects the the um the farmers like our skill set was was determined on how what we could do to bring back to this country and how we could it was it was labor but it was specific labor mm. it was specific know-how and so 
And then everything that we did here, despite our enslavement, despite our second-class citizenship, despite all the things that try to keep us down, still we rise. I am in Washington, D.C., and I am looking out on the Tidewater Basin with the beautiful cherry blossoms, the Jefferson Memorial. And I think about a man named Benjamin Banneker, who was an apprentice of Charles Lafont, who was an incredible architect from, from France that we had hired to, you know, make this city. And he left with the plans back to France when the Americans refused to pay him. Right? And Can you blame him? They were like, what are we going to do? And Benjamin Manica said, oh, I remember. Uh-huh. And then he's the same guy who argued with Thomas Jefferson about the absolute inhumanity of, of slavery and how hypocritical his declaration of independence was with how he was living post-presidency in his Monticello. Uh-huh. And so I think about Benjamin Banneker, who was this child born into a Quaker family and created a life of himself and fought for his people with his utter brilliance and determination and the power that he had. And we continuously did that all the way through to today. Mm -hmm. And so that is what I gained from Howard University, that education. Now, that education is, is all over this country in uh, PWIs, uh, predominantly white institutions as well. And I thank them for, for creating a, a space and place for our history. But it is, we need to, we need to tell our history. Yeah. And we need to make sure our children understand. So they are proud of who they are. They have no shame in the game of their identity. And, um, and it was funny. I was with uh, Michael Eric Dyson. He did a and a at one of the book signings. We love him, yes. And he said, "I, you know, I'm at a, he says, I am, I'm at an HBCU. Um, well, he said, homeboy cutting up. Because he's cutting up letting folks know the history. <laughs> it is new place of Vanderbilt University. I thought that was really funny. So I'm going to take that one on the road with me. He is, but he is a, he is a home artist. Always, always. Um, okay, so you and I have established, you know, now, would I love it? First of all, I love this book. So, you know, I, I really want our listeners to Do you really love the I book? Do, I do really love it. I really got into it. I really, when I find myself reading a book and wanting to return to it, it's always a good sign. And I read a lot of books because I, I host this podcast. I know so you there do. you go. Um, what I, I, I don't know what I expected to find in this book. I don't know what I was, you know, um, but I was definitely drawn in. I saw so much of myself in it, uh, so many parallels. Um, just, you know, generationally and, and, you know, culturally and, you know, and I think that anybody who engages with this book, um, it, it, it will, it has something to give them. Uh, so I, I hope that our, I wanted it to resonate beyond do. me. Yes. I wanted it to, I, because I think my story is so many other people's stories. Yeah. Um, even to the point where I happen to be on the set with someone like Brian Cranston and I discovered that. His origin story as a child, his parents abandoned or his father had abandoned him. Oh, wow. And so, you know, it was a moment of like, here's this. No one knows that story about no, him. And I yet it's something that. we share. And and I just I think that people hopefully they're going to grow from this. Yeah. They're going to search yeah. their their identity in many ways. And I just want it. I want it to be a bridge. 
Yeah, and I think I definitely think it has that potential. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that we, uh, you know, as we as we wrap up this very lively and very fun conversation, I'm going to ask you a question I ask all of our guests because I do think it's important. We have already established you and I that we we are, we do not journal, um, for better or worse, we do not journal. But what do you read? Like, who do you? Who, what writers do you gravitate towards? What what storytellers do you love? You're going to think I'm really funny, but oh, so my favorite book. <laughs> Is Carl Sagan's is Carl Sagan's Contact? Oh my! So I mean, I love the movie. So and there you go. and Arthur C. Clarke's 2010. Okay. Um, and uh, and then I'm gonna just admit that I am a glutton for romance novels. Oh, that's you know what? It's fine. I, we we've had some romance novels on this show. Um, some really great ones, and I, you know, listen. <laughs> Stacey Abrams is a romance novelist, so there you go. Like, what are you, you going to do? What are you going to do? We need, we need, we are. Full, oh my gosh, I don't even want to tell people. you the titles that come to it's mind. Okay. It's oh. okay. So you like a good bodice ripper, like a good like. Okay. I love the reimagining of of the Bridgertons on screen. They are fun. They are fun. For whatever liberties they take with history and colonialism, they are fun. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I look forward to the liberties. Being to... They're reimaginings. I, I agree. I agree. That, and I, that are yeah. based in some way, shape, or form on an element of truth. Yes. Yes. That we and what I have want for us, we did also, have a Queen Charlotte. Exactly. There are people who did live that life. That's right. Albeit they were few and far in between. Yeah. I, I look forward to us being able to enjoy that stuff too, without having to kind of like interrogate everything. You know, I yes. think. Um, I mean, that it's it's a circumstance of how we got here and how we've lived here. But I also think, um, as you said, we deserve joy and whatever that looks like in terms of how, how we cut 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 that loose and enjoy ourselves. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. here for it. But uh, Michelle Miller, I have so enjoyed having you on the podcast. You were so fun. And Thank I you. really enjoyed belonging. And I hope that our listeners will get into this, too. Um, this is a really, this is a fascinating story. So, you know, you writing black fans, check this out. Um, and you can see Michelle in the meantime on Saturday mornings on CBS. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Maisha. I really can't say enough about how fun it was to speak with Michelle Miller or how intriguing uh, belonging really is. You know, for, for all that we talked about in that conversation, there's so many other layers to this story. I really, really highly recommend this book. I think, um, it's a really thoughtful and insightful look at race and class in America uh, as we know it. But um, if you are looking for other books that really kind of deal with that tenuous thread that we call uh, mother-child relationships um, and and the issues that arise for mixed-race children uh, in this country, Surviving the White Gaze is another memoir that's pretty amazing. This is by Rebecca Carroll, who is a tremendous writer. Um, and this, you know, book is both uh, and different um, in terms of um, a child who was, again, brought uh, into the world under tenuous circumstances and raised in, a, in, a, in an unconventional way, in a way that really uh, forced them to have to investigate and excavate their own identities. So Surviving the White Gaze uh, is another tremendous memoir that I highly recommend, um, but also get into belonging and... Please come join us again for our next episode of Writing Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. 